Welcome everyone to the Wild West Podcast, where we talk about the people shaping how we think about nature, the outdoors, and California's wild places. I'm San Francisco Chronicle travel editor Greg Thomas, and this pod is a place where I interview adventure athletes and environmental advocates and the movers and shakers who are defining and redefining what we do when we go outdoors. Today, we're excited to have rock climber Alex Honnold on the podcast. Um, if you don't know, uh, simply put, Alex Honnold is one of the most accomplished rock climbers in the history of the sport, um, and he does things that even other high-level rock climbers think is nuts. <laughs> uh, his main stomping ground is Yosemite, and it's, it's where he's lived on and off for the past 12 or 13 years uh, out of his van. And last year, he free-soloed El Capitan. That's the 3,000-foot granite wall right there in Yosemite Valley when you first come into the valley. Uh, so that means free soloing means he went up by himself without a rope, uh, without any gear, with just shoes and a chalk bag. And he went from bottom to the top in just under four hours. So that's pretty wild when you think about it. Uh, Alex had a film crew on the wall and a documentary about the climb is getting its wide release at movie theaters around the country this month. Uh, the film's called Free Solo, and it's definitely worth seeing. I mean, not only is watching Alex climb totally mind-blowing, but... Uh, the film takes us into his background and his personal life, and like it teases at some fun questions like uh, what Alex is willing to risk in his life and why. For the podcast, I met Alex in Yosemite Valley, and it was in the midst of his this whirlwind media tour that he's doing to hype the film. Um, and we took a walk through El Cap Meadow to sit in the dirt under his favorite tree and talk uh, while watching groups of climbers on El Cap sort of inching their way up the wall in the distance. Uh, so there are a few times during the pod where we kind of get sidetracked talking about what we're seeing on the wall in front of us, but it's mostly pretty fun to listen to, I think, so I left some of it, some of it in for you guys to hear because uh, hearing Alex talk about climbing in El Cap is pretty exhilarating. All right, let's get to it. Here's Alex Honnold. You seem like a guy who is sort of driven, like routine driven. And so when you're traveling around a lot, how do you kind of maintain, you know, some semblance of routine or training? Um, yeah, I mean, it's t- tough. I'm, you know, I'm going to the climbing gym. I'm uh, doing my best to eat well and, and whatever. But, I mean, it's not so much about, I've been doing daily core. I mean, that's as close as I get to routine. Um yeah, you can't really have a routine because each day is like a totally different thing with like way too much flying. And, um, but you can at least still try to stay, you know, committed to, you know, being on the program, like trying to do hard gym sessions on the days that you can and then take the days that you can't as rest so that you can go hard on the next one, you know, still like make your days count. Yeah. And so you're here in your van. Mm-hmm. And how long have you lived out of your van in Yosemite? I mean, well, I've only owned that van for the last two years or two and a half or something. Right, that one's like um, a considerable upgrade yeah, from yeah, the first one. Yeah, my first van I had for nine years, I think. So, I mean, I've basically been climbing Yosemite all the time since 2005, 2006. So it's like 12 or 13 years. Okay. I've been, and then I've been probably spending at least two or three months a year in Yosemite. So that's you know, quite a bit of time over, over the last decade. Yeah. But now, so you're sort of transitioning at the, uh, is it fair to call it a transition? Like you bought a house in Vegas recently? I uh, no, but I bought the house in Vegas two years ago, and um, and I've been there, I don't know, a week in the last three months or something. Um, the bigger transition would probably just be being in a stable relationship with my girlfriend and like managing, you know, both of our schedules combined and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, 
but no, I mean, we're still pretty close to the the same lifestyle, but just with less, less free time, you know. But but then also comfortable life too. Like, oh, I have a house and it's, it's nice, and you know, eat the food that I want when I want. And like, oh, that's all pretty cool. Yeah, is the house like? sort of does it feel like home or is it you know is it like furnished does it have stuff yeah no it's furnished and uh actually my girlfriend has done an amazing job of of decorating and you know putting up nice pictures and painting a few walls and like making making it nice like it feels homey for sure um and all of my possessions are there so i mean it definitely feels like my home i mean the the van probably feels more like home um a little cozy you know like when i'm in the van i'm like ah you know, home sweet home. But but honestly, every time I come back to Vegas now, I'm always like, oh, it's so nice to be back. Actually, one of my favorite things about Vegas is uh, I have a Vitamix, and so I do, like, smoothies every day when I'm at home, and I'm, like, so into it. I think it's awesome. Do you not? Can you not do that in the van? Not really. Not with Vitamix. It pulls too much power. Okay. Um, you, I maybe could, but I'd have to, like, do some finagling. Plus, it's hard to keep that much frozen stuff in the van. I mean, oh, yeah. I do have a fridge and a freezer, but it's, like, not really the capacity you'd want for fresh smoothies every day. Yeah. Um, what kind of just, smoothies do you do every day? Oh, it's like pretty epic. Um, just, I mean, just fruits and vegetables and protein powder and, um, you know, basic stuff, some nuts. And, but I've been getting pretty into adding some like ginger or turmeric or like adding just like a half a lemon, like with the rind and everything. It makes it taste like cheesecake. It's like so good. <laughs> I'm like really into smoothies. Nice. It's amazing because you can take a pile of ingredients, basically like a salad. It's like all wholesome goodness. And then you mix it and you're like, this is so delicious. You know, it's it's kind of awesome. Yeah. What are like two things that are awesome about living in a van that you can't get from living in a house? And what are two things living in a house that you love that you can't get living in a van? Because the two things living in a house that are great are... Besides the Vitamix. Yeah, besides the Vitamix are uh, like a bathroom or a shower is awesome. You know, just being able to like use the bathroom anytime you want or like <laughs> take a shower. That's yeah. That's a big plus. And then having power or Wi-Fi is, like, pretty nice, too, I think. But the, the beauty of the van is just, like, having a simpler life. You know, having everything within arm's reach. Never having to, like, wander around looking for things because it's all right there. Um, and just being more intentional about your time. I mean, typically when you're living in the van, you're doing exactly what you want to be doing at all times. You know, you're, like, you're parked in the place that you want to be to do the thing that you want to do. You know, it's, you're rarely just like, oh, I'm wasting time in the van. I mean, you can be, but but then it feels more like I'm resting, you know, because I'm going to do something else soon. I don't know, like, I feel like in a house it's pretty easy to just sort of veg out or be like, oh, I'm lounging on the sofa, and then, like, oh, the day went by and nothing really happened. It's, like, pretty hard for days to just, like, slip by in the van, like you're always doing what you want to be doing. Yeah, that was why I mentioned it, because you, you seem like a guy who is, uh, you know, intentional with your mm-hmm. time and your energy, and living in a van like you said is everything is um yeah i mean you kind of have to yeah it, the, like intentional living is slightly cliche sounding you know or it's sort of like hip and like oh it's you know but certainly van life is is much more intentional i mean mostly because you have to choose to live in a van and you live in a van for a reason because you want to do some act- specific activity in my case climbing and so you know once you make the choice that you're living in the van it's like it's for something right but, or it's because you can't afford a house but you know but it, it also seems like it kind of goes with your ethos of being a little more like environmentally conscientious too. Totally. And I know totally. that's not like necessarily why you did it, right? You did it so that you could like yeah, be closer I did it so to the wall. Climb all the time, but then but it, like is, a, it is a plus. I mean, you're sort of like, oh, this is. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could conceivably 
drive a little sports car and get hotels everywhere I go, you know, be way more expensive, higher impact and just like more complicated, you know, and you're just like, who wants, who wants to live that way? It's like, it's nice having like a little home that moves around with you and it's like, you know, maintain the simple life. Yeah. So one of your, so I reached out to a handful of your friends to oh, ask, cool. to see what kind of questions I should ask yeah. you. One of them told me to ask you about the impact, the influence that your sister has had on you in yeah. terms of kind of your, your broader, like environment, like eco friendly yeah, yeah, yeah. ethos. Uh, you know, my sister's pretty classic. I mean, she's, uh, she lives in Portland. She's never owned a car. She's been vegan forever, like since college. Um, and so she's, you know, she's ultra, I mean, she's, she's much more intentional about her life than I'm. She doesn't have social media. She doesn't have a smartphone. She's strongly like anti, she's got her little flip phone and she goes on big bike adventures. I talked to her yesterday while I was driving and, um, and she, uh, had just done a five day solo bike tour backpacking adventure where she like took the train to Eugene, biked out to what's it called? Broken top, some random mountain, basically like circumnavigated the mountain as a backpacking excursion and then bike back to Portland. You know, and I'm just like, that's pretty legit. You know, like she's pretty into the low impact, but, but high, you know, personal satisfaction lifestyle. You know, it's like her life is very, when she's at home, she's always like journaling or reading. Like she reads a lot and just has a lot of time to herself where she like walks to the store and calls family or friends or whatever. And then, then goes home and like writes a bit and reads a bit. And it's all, they're like, what a nice lifestyle. It's interesting because it's the kind of lifestyle that people are like, Oh, I wish I could do that but nobody actually does. And you're sort of like, it's actually not really that hard. You just, you just do it. Seems pretty simple. Yeah. Yeah. It's super simple and you know, pretty wholesome. Yeah. So what, what of that have you kind of taken with you or, or how is she kind of led by example? It's a good reminder of how you can lead life if you want to. And I think that a lot of people would look at me and think that I'm, I'm sort of similar, you know, I look, but she's like a step beyond you know, because I mean, I love my smartphone. I get sucked into social media. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, my smartphone, though, is like a tool. It's like for all the navigation and dealing and, you know, airports and just. Yeah, you have you a know. more itinerant lifestyle than she does. Too. It sounds like she's relatively stable. Yeah, I mean, she's lived in a home in Portland for a long time. Though it's funny because she goes on big adventures all the time with a bike, but they're just, you know, she looks at a map, she plans her course, she goes riding. It's all sort of, you know, if the road isn't there, the road isn't there. She just figures it out. You know, she like has a map. <laughs> it's like, it's, yeah, it's interesting. She has less of a schedule in some ways. I don't know. I'm like running through New York city, looking at the map being like, I have nine minutes to be at this like ABC studio or something. You know, you're all like, <laughs> she like charged through New York. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about the film a little bit. First of all, I just wanted to say <clears throat> it's spectacular. I mean, truly. And like, not in the sense of being a great, uh, climbing flick Mm -hmm. but in the sense of being like a documentary narrative Mm -hmm. or a narrative documentary it's great Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. i think of it as less of a climbing film and more of like a character study yeah Um, i I prefer to watch the climbing but you know (laughs) nobody wants to study their own character well i was going to ask you about that because you must have known so you chose to let jimmy and chai like film this climb, right? Yeah. And as part of that, they were like, okay, we're going to follow you around for a year and a half leading up to the climb. Mm-hmm. So you must have known that like, they're not just going to film you training in the gym or yeah, whatever. Totally. You just never quite know the scope of it. You know I mean? Cause yeah, it's easy to agree like, oh yeah, let's make a film. It'll be, it'll be great. Um, but I mean, I, I'd had a lot of experience making climbing films, but typically with climbing films, you just sort of go out and get the shot. 
you know, it's not like a strict documentary. They're not following you around waiting to see what happens. They're just like, oh, we need shots of you hiking to the base. Let's go out and get the shots of you hiking to the base. So like on your rest day, you go out and you look, and you get the shots that you need. Um, and it's all like pretty easy, pretty relaxed. Um, but they're, you know, with, uh, with Chai, especially the, the verite style of filming, like the actual documentary is, you know, a totally different, totally different thing. And so, um, yeah, I was just like, oh wow, this is this is what we're doing. But you knew that but, you knew that going in, right? Like well, you'd kind seen of, Meru, no. and you know you. Well, kind no, of, but you Meru, they didn't shoot that way. I mean, right? Meru, but, Meru definitely has like a really beautiful cinematic feel, and they reshot the document or reshot the interviews that way. Right. But like shooting interviews is one thing because you just it's on a schedule. You just sit down and do the interview. But you know, because Meru had already been shot essentially before Chai even came into the project, she didn't really bring that whole verite component to it. Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, because I, yeah, I mean, I know a lot about Meru because they're all friends of mine. I'd seen all the footage over the years. And, and the first expedition, you know, their failed attempt on Meru had been, a North, well, they both were North Face expeditions. But so the first failed attempt had been like a piece that, like a brand piece for TNF that I'd seen at like events for years, you know. Yeah. So I was like deep into the Meru scene. And I was like, oh yeah. And they freaking made a great film. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. I mean, that's why I wanted to work with them because you're like, oh, they did amazing work. Um, but then Free Solo definitely was like a different different scope I think you know I think that they were able to well basically they were able to start it from scratch with with a bigger vision you know whereas Meru the the first time they went up to the mountain they were just like oh we're just climbing this wall and shooting some pictures of each other while we do it it's totally different than being like we're gonna make feature film about this climb yeah you know did they clue you in to the vision I mean I don't know how they would describe the vision but it's a pretty well, personal movie oh no well yeah, no, I knew nothing about it. <laughs> like, um, and the thing is, though, realistically, I don't think they necessarily knew that at the beginning. You know, just because, like, when they started filming, I hadn't even met Sonny like, yet. You know, and so the film is, um, you know, I mean, it's a, a big part of the film is, like, the whole love story with my girlfriend and all that. But I hadn't even met her when we started. When I'd committed to do a film with them, like, who knew that there would be a girlfriend? You know, at the time, I was just single in my van. But, yeah, because that's what comes off I think for me in the film I mean the reason that it was that one of the reasons why I enjoyed it so much is because it takes you through the motions of like this young man who's kind of at like a critical or maybe a pivotal sort of juncture in his life Um, you know trying to figure things out with your girlfriend Mm -hmm. buying the house working towards this big project yeah and just kind of juggling all these different and and also sort of I think reevaluating or figuring out your sort of values and priorities yeah what are you willing to risk and and yeah is, is it worth it? All those questions. Totally. It's just funny because as you're living through the process, it all just feels like life. You know, you're like, I'm training, I'm buying a house. I'm like hanging out with my girlfriend. We're training. There's like stress. We're trying to figure out what we're doing. I want to go back to Yosemite. And then once it's all laid out in this beautiful film, then yeah, it seems like a pivotal moment in life. It's all beautiful. It all builds to this thing. And yeah, all, you know, everything like looks great in retrospect. You know, and it's all... And when you can distill it down into yeah, two, you yeah, know, totally. two years of your life into two hours. Yeah, yeah. Right. No, but I mean, I think they did a great job, though, because, you know, when I watch the film now, I mean, it is a very honest portrayal. I'm like, that, the, those are the last two years of my life. Like, there it is. It's just laid out in film. You know, like, I don't feel like, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's all totally fair. You know, I'm like, yep, that's it. You know, for better or for worse, because obviously there are parts that I watch and make me cringe a little bit, and then there's some parts that I watch and, you know, total glory, you're like, oh, it's amazing. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, that's cool. Because one of the things that I think 
the challenges you face going into like a documentary project, not you, but filmmakers, mm -hmm. is you need suspense and drama. And so <clears throat> if that doesn't occur naturally or organically, you mm -hmm. kind of have to manufacture it a little bit. And I yeah, felt like they... I, I think with this, I mean, there's plenty of inherent drama built in. Just because you look up at the freaking wall and you're like, that's messed up. No, you know what? It's Actually, like... but that's not it. That's like... You think it's the That's sort of the payoff. I think it was like Sonny and just your... Yeah, just your life developing this way and you kind of contending with that. I thought the yeah. I thought the climb was like this awesome payoff. Yeah, And it yeah, serves totally. as like an important sort of uh, like symbol, you know, this like mm -hmm. the Holy Grail kind mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah, but it was really like the the journey is like what's the what you know the enjoyable part of the film was. Uh, yeah, it's funny for me. It's you know my my experience watching the film is pretty different, um, just because you know me watching my relationship unfold is all a little bit <laughs> it's a little bit tough. But me watching the climb, I'm like that is me at my best and that is great, you know. But a lot of the scenes with Sonny are like me at my worst. You know, I'm like oh man, like what a douche. But. That's all right. Well, so what did you hope to get out of the experience when you signed on for this? For the film? Yeah. Oh, I mean, well, so the main thing is I wanted I wanted them to do justice to El Cap. You know, I was like, if anyone's going to make a film, I want El Cap to get its due. You know, I mean, you look at this wall, and it's, it's I mean, it's the most inspiring wall on earth. It's it's just so, so perfect. So mostly I was like, I want a film that, that does justice to it. And... And then also just as a professional climber, I was like, obviously it's a big opportunity to, to have a, you know, a feature film about me or whatever. Um, I mean, the thing was, I knew that if I just free solo it all cap totally by myself, no media, no anything, as soon as I did it, tons of people would want to go back and shoot on it because that's happened on everything else that I've sold over the last 10 years. You know, it's like, if you do something iconic, people are like, oh, well, let's go get stills. Let's go shoot video. Let's do whatever. And in a lot of ways, I was like, well, you may as well shoot all that stuff while you work on it because it helps you. Like, um, you know, because it's, I mean, I suppose you haven't climbed here enough to appreciate, but like hiking to the top of El Cap, repelling 1,500 feet down to work on one pitch for the day and then repelling the rest of the way to ground is like not, not an easy proposition, you know? And so in some ways, it's easier if you have somebody with you who's filming. Whether they're filming or not, it's just easier to have a partner for some of that stuff. And so, but like none of my friends would want to just go up and help me on El Cap day in, day out because they'd just be grinding away for nothing because it's not like any of them want to free solo El Cap. And so, um, yeah, so it just it just kind of made sense you know i was like yeah you know, was and, and honestly the film i kind of wanted a reason you know i so i've been dreaming about selling El cap since 2009 or something and each year and kind of like waiting for it to happen you know each year i'm be like oh this is the year i'm going to do it and then i drive in and be like there's no freaking way like that is completely outrageous and I, at a certain point i was like this is never going to happen without me putting in the work and like actually making it happen and so you know shooting a film about it w was also sort of a way to hold me accountable to that and actually like start the process interesting know? because yeah when you're totally by when you don't tell anybody about it and it's totally your own personal dream but each year you're like i'm too scared to even go try because <laughs> you're like what the fuck look at that wall you know it's um yeah it's just like at some point you need to just say like i'm going to work on this thing these people are going to help me work on it it's all going to be you know a little more official like we're doing it here we go so did you give them, like, a time frame? Like that, was, that was a really rambling answer. But basically, there are tons of factors that all kind of came together. But for me, I was just like, this is a good opportunity for me professionally and personally. It's something I want to do anyway. And, and I thought that they would be the right team to make a good film about El Cap. So I was like, this, it all seems perfect. You know? Yeah. Oh, wow, there are people on the shield. Um, you know, that doesn't mean anything to you, but it's an age route that you don't see people on that much. You see, uh, do you know the nose? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, roughly, the nose or the corners on the like right on the center of the prow. Or yeah. actually, okay, you see uh, the white rock at the bottom, how yeah. the whole bottom is white. Yeah. And if you go up from that, there's kind of like a big dark tower. Yeah. Like that's El Cap Tower. That's part of the nose. And then right above that, there's this thing that looks like Texas. That's Texas flake. Okay. You can see the flake right above it. Yeah. And then right above that, there's a little tiny white thing that looks like a little boot. Yeah. With the toe facing left. Yeah, that's yeah. That's the boot flake. You can see a dude standing on top of it on the left. Okay, the I can imagine the that. Yeah, it, that's, yeah. That's the dude standing there. He's about to do the king swing, which is where you swing around the corner, um, which at the time was like the biggest pendulum ever done. Um, but so you like lower down a whole pitch, you swing around, and then you get into that jumbly rock on the left. Yeah. Um, and then slightly left and straight out from that, you see there's like a shaded roof. It's like a big arcing crack that then it's like a triangular shadow right now. Yes. So that's the great roof. That's like a 513 pitch. And then that goes to the right. And then you see it's just one series of corners going all the way to the top from there. Yeah. So that's the nose. Yeah. Um, so the nose corners, just to the left of it, there are a bunch of shaded corners facing to the left. Right. And then just to the left of that, you have the big orange headwall. Yeah. And in the middle of that orange headwall, you see down low, there's a really prominent crack. Oh. And then you see like a yeah, deep, yeah, yeah. Yeah, red like with a portal edge. edge. Yeah, exactly. I saw that guy like first thing this morning because he's like, the oh, only classic. thing that stuck yeah, out. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So that's the shield. That's like a really classic aid line, and it's uh, you just don't see people on it that much. So, I mean, you see the shield headwall is like one of the most exposed blank pieces totally. of rock like, on the whole wall. It's yeah. like kind of amazing. Yeah, it was funny. Like, I had some time this morning when I first pulled up, and I was just sitting on the railing, like, staring up at El Cap. The only <laughs> thing in the sun was the Dawn Wall. And so I'm just looking at the Dawn Wall after, and I just saw that film the other day. Oh, awesome. And, like, yeah. I'm just like, my God. I mean, yeah. first of all, there's nothing on it, including features, um, yeah. apart from the tower, really. Actually, so you see El Cap Tower, the black tower down yeah. low that I pointed out? Yeah. So you see just above it and to the right, the white line that goes diagonally yes. across? Those are pitch 15 and 16. That's where Kevin, Kevin. was, like, doing the 14D pitch. Yeah. Like, it's that white dyke that goes across. Uh, and you see awesome. if you follow that white dyke all the way to the right, and then you see it kind of becomes this, like, little arcing corner right. that goes down. That's a, there's only one five nine pitch on the whole route, I think. It's like that little corner in there. There's like one actual crack where you're like it's like all the pitches below that are like fourteen B, fourteen A, and then you're like five nine hands, and then it's like thirteen D, fourteen B, fourteen, you know, it's like so crazy. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it's like it's pretty funny. But yeah, the Don Wall is totally totally outrageous. It's fun to sit here and like imagine it. No, I know, isn't it? Like I mean that's the thing about El Cap, it really like stirs the imagination. You know, you look up at the wall and you're just like, what a freaking what opportunity for adventure you know, it's like there's just so so much is there do you think of El Cap as like a living thing no no but you know striking and inspiring and and I mean I think of it as just a big uncaring grand thing you know I don't know okay but I was just curious because like you know you spend a lot of time with something it starts to develop yeah I'm, like I'm a not like spiritual like or animistic okay. like that you know I'm yeah. not like totally into it but um but I mean I do I do you know love and respect El Cap in, in its way like I wouldn't want to make a countertop out of it you know you'd be like oh that's just that's just disrespectful <laughs> like what a what a great piece of actually while while we're looking at people you can yeah. see people on the free blast slabs too if you remember from from my film the slabs down low um, let's see. If, if yeah, for can, sure. Two of them, like back to back, two and then right there's next to each other, and then there's, there's two, two further down. down. Low, but the two people down low are on the nose; they're on the diagonal cracks that are going to the right. Okay. That eventually arc up and right into the nose. But then the two people straight above them that are just like two little dots on the yeah. face—that's the free blast slab. That guy's on the second eleven A pitch. That's actually um, probably like thirty feet above him is where I fell and hurt my ankle. Man, so I was going to ask you if so when you're 
soloing something mm. and you have an issue or whatever, mm-hmm. how do you call for a rescue on the wall? Well, so in the film, you see my one failed attempt. Yeah. I didn't really call for a rescue. I just basically started cheating. So there, there are bolts there that you normally clip your rope into. I just started grabbing them and stepping on them, which takes an 11B slab pitch and makes it probably 10B or something, which is pretty casual compared to 11B. And so, um, so I basically cheated my way up the slab. And then above that, I mean, you can see there are, uh, there are four more pitches up to Mammoth Terrace. And then, I don't know if you know, but they're fixed lines that come all the way down to the ground. So I basically then just climbed the next four pitches um, up to the big ledge up there and then followed ropes back to the ground. So like you... it, it made more sense than like, I mean, I guess I could have like stopped and just held on and been like, somebody come and get me and ask for the camera guy to rappel down and like collect me. But in a lot of ways, that's like more dramatic and more of a thing than it needs to be because, um, you know, it probably took me 15 minutes to climb the rest of the way up and get to the ropes and just come down on my own. Okay. So it's like... Because when I imagine... Maybe 20. When I imagine you... <clears throat> When I imagine you stopping and thinking, okay, I can't do this. This isn't the day. I imagine like something kind of urgent or immediate that's causing you distress or discomfort or something. Well, yeah. So there was a specific move where I didn't want to trust my right foot. And I basically was like, I'm not willing to make this move. And then it's like flipping the switch. Like, okay, I'm not free climbing. Like I'm not sending this. And so then it's like, all right, I'm just getting off this as most of, as efficiently as I can. Which still which involves in the, a certain amount case, of free soloing. Yeah. Which in that case involves another five pitches of climbing upward. But you know, but it's easy free soloing compared to hard free soloing. That's an but, interesting way to look at it. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, you know, like this morning I soloed uh, like a five pitch, five six in my tennies, like really blown out tennies um, with like no chalk. Just like, I mean, it was basically like hiking, you know, I was just like walking up this thing. Um, mostly to get some pictures for this, uh, for this thing, like some event that I'm supposed to do. I just was like supposed to take some nature pictures and I was like, Oh, I'm driving through and it's like a nice way to go for a little walk. And it's like beautiful. It's like above tonight Lake, you know? Um, and I mean, yeah, technically it's free soloing, but it's like, I'm in my street shoes that are like totally blown out, you know, with no chalks. Like, yeah, I mean, five, six is, is pretty casual. And so, you know, the, the bailing upward, it was a five, nine pitch, a 10 B pitch and two, five, seven pitches which compared to the hard stuff on free rider is like pretty, pretty trivial. Okay. But, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, freaking it's, it's nice to sit in the, you know, cab and just be like, Oh, I can't believe I climbed all that shit. <laughs> it's pretty cool. So you used to not tell people when you were going to go free solo something, mm-hmm. but that's changed, especially with, no, n- not, not totally. I mean, it's always been a spectrum, you know, like I would, I try not to talk about it ahead of time, but, um, but, you know, certain solos I've done in the past, people have known about and, and uh, you know, I've had previous girlfriends and stuff that knew about some of the things I was doing. And um, some, of my, some of my climbing friends certainly knew about some of the things because they would climb it with me with a rope ahead of time. And, you know, they're like, oh, obviously you're, you're scouting because you're like going up and down and trying hard moves over and over. But um, so it's never been like a full on secret, but it's just never been public either. And the film was obviously less secretive because so many people were involved in the making of the film. Right. But overall, it was still surprisingly under wraps. You know, it's not like there was a crowd in the meadow watching or anything. Like, the day that I did it, there were maybe six people that, that you know, were around. But. So when you uh, have to tell Jimmy, whoever, like a film crew, a number of people, like, okay, I'm going to go do this right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, does that put a certain amount of pressure on you? Or have yeah, you, like, yeah, been- it could. But so actually we, we all sort of learned over the two years that we were filming that we had to minimize that kind of pressure. And so by the time I actually did it, 
I mean, it's kind of a funny little story, but the day before I was going to do it, um, Jimmy and, and uh, one of the camera guys, this guy Claire, the Verite filmer, were staying sort of in the same place that I was. And they were sort of hanging out and they were talking about going climbing uh, the East Butchers Middle, which is like this skyline right here. And um, it's a really classic 510, like really fun climb. And I was sort of like, oh, you know, I might climb tomorrow, but I didn't want to like say I'm going to free solo El Cap tomorrow because it makes it feel a little like too intense. And, uh, and they're like, well, you know, we're thinking about doing the East Butt, but if, I mean, if you want to climb, I guess we get ready or whatever. And, um, and it was like super, you know, like, oh, you know, we'll see. What I didn't know is that the whole crew was already like hiking to the top, rappelling in, their ropes getting set. I think Chai was flying from New York, you know, like everything was happening, but they were just keeping it super chill with like, oh, well, we're hoping to go climb the East Butt of Middle, but you know, if you want to climb, that's fine, whatever you want to do. And so I was like, oh, you know, I think I'll probably climb tomorrow. Like, you know, we'll see, we'll see. And then, you know, so I never really, and they realized that I needed that space, you know, that I, that they didn't need to put pressure on me. Be like, so are you doing it? What time are you doing it? What time, you know, like, are you going to be, you know, how do you feel? Is it going to be great? You know, because you're like, oh, I don't know. Like, just let me do my thing. But yeah, so I mean, you know, throughout the filming, I think over the two years, there were some climbs where it was like, oh, this is a little more stressful because we have to schedule it. But by the time I actually free sold it all capped, it was it was kind of perfectly executed. You know, they knew to give me the space I needed and, and, and they were still totally ready and they captured it perfectly. But it was pretty funny. I was kind of like, I don't know. I think maybe you guys should be ready. I mean, I, th I think I might climb tomorrow. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, you know, but it, yeah. Um, I was talking to Peter Croft about that the other day. Mm. Like nice. He seemed Did like, you call him? yeah. Yeah. Cool. He seemed like he He's was, <laughs> he seems like the man. He seems like he was, you know, trying to kind of create a little bit of a, like a, a buffer or like a cushion or I, I don't know, just like give totally. you a little bit of space to kind of do your thing. I mean, he seems like somebody obviously who would understand what you're yeah. going through. Yeah. He's, he certainly understands solo learning better than most, better than anybody really. Um, yeah, no, he, yeah, he's awesome. I mean, you see the scene in the film where he's kind of like, well, you do you, you know, you stick to your guns and you just, he's like, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. Like you don't have to do it. And, um, yeah, which is all stuff that I know, but it's nice to hear from somebody. Totally. You know? I asked him when I saw that in the film, that moment, uh, and then I talked to him on the phone. I was like, it kind of sounded to me like you were maybe trying to talk Alex out of it. Like, you know, giving, he was trying to like give you a yeah, way out. out. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like, what do you, so what do you think about that? And he's like, oh no, I wasn't trying to talk about it at all. I think it's like, like awesome that he did this. You should totally do this. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. I, yeah. I don't really know. I don't know what his personal feelings on it are, but, but it is a natural extension of the things that he was selling in Yosemite in the eighties and nineties. And so, you know, I'm sure that if he were a little kid right now, that's what he would be dreaming about, you know, because it's like, it's, it's the same sort of climbing that he's always done, but just on a bigger scale because it's 30 years later. <laughs> So do you anticipate soloing develop? I mean, like, where does soloing develop from here? That was a question that I had. I mean, right after you did it in 2017, it was like, okay, so this yeah, is kind of... Yeah, what happens next? I mean, like, there are harder routes up El Cap, for example, yeah. harder routes elsewhere, maybe, but like, yeah, there are. in terms of, like, it, it's been done once now, and so it's, it's Yeah, complete. it's hard to say. I don't know. Did you ask Peter that? I don't know if I did. Because I'm, I'm curious. Like, I honestly don't know. Um, I mean, I think that in a lot of ways El Cap sort of represents the, the edge of my vision you know like this is this is as big as I can dream in terms of I think um, but you know t time will tell maybe in a couple of years I'll get fired up about something but um, but I don't know I mean I've never I've never dreamed any bigger than El Cap it's like that's I don't know I mean 
I think that in climbing there's certain generational limits where you know like the golden age just climbing the wall was like sort of the limit of their vision and like for the stone masters like climbing in a day was sort of the limit of the vision you know and 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 so I mean for me I think free souling is sort of you know at least right now is sort of the limit of my vision but you know somebody else will have a better vision at some point we'll just see so if you had to guess like what could that possibly be I don't know I mean enchainments are an obvious thing like doing multiple like um, you know, I sold the triple in 2012. Uh, you know, free soling the triple would be an obvious next step. It would be completely outrageous. And unfortunately, it doesn't technically go right now because Half Dome had a big rock fall, so it's not actually free, free soloable anymore. But maybe somebody will figure out a better way up and now. Um, I don't know, or stuff in bigger mountains, you know, um, go to the Karakoram in Pakistan. I mean, there are some, like, bigger walls in the world that are this kind of scale, but in more remote places you could do things like that. But that, like, doesn't really appeal to me. It's a little too, it's a little too random. You know, the thing is, like, this has a certain, certain mythology to it or a certain history that you're, like, you know, like, it matters enough to me. But, you know, some big wall in Pakistan, I'm like, who cares? You know, I didn't grow up near that, like, right. dreaming about it. It's just, like, some random piece of rock. Right. I don't know. This isn't exactly what we were talking about, but it makes me think about it. So a few weeks ago, you soloed that building, apartment mm-hmm. building, I think, in Jersey City, mm-hmm. right? So is it possible that that has anything to do with, like, the next, with the, the future or the next, like, wave? Is there going to be more building, building soloing, stuff. you think? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would love to climb more buildings. Um, I mean, I don't think it's the future of climbing, you know? I don't think it's, it's like, what's next for me, but... um but climbing buildings I think is surprisingly fun and it's really rare to get the opportunity so anytime you do I just feel like you go with it you know in the same way that you don't often get like VIP tickets to a concert or something and you're just sort of like oh I'll go just because it's a cool experience um, you know bu- climbing buildings is kind of the same to me it's so rare to be allowed to that you kind of just have to do it when you can so what are the challenges of climbing a building versus climbing a wall well, one of the obvious challenges with building climbing is that they're really slippery. <laughs> you know, steel and glass is just, uh, you know, really slippery. Um, and then the biggest challenge is getting permission, followed by trying not to have too big an impact on residents or people working in the building or just feeling like a total weirdo when people are staring at you because you're, like, hanging on the side of a building. Yeah. Um, I actually find that surprisingly uh, hard to deal with. You know, you're like, oh, I don't like being that weirdo. But... But the climbing in, is interesting. You know, sometimes it's easier because you're just doing the same thing over and over. But then sometimes that actually makes it harder because you're isolating the exact same muscles and movements over and over and over. And you kind of, like, hammer it in a way that you wouldn't climbing. So, um, like, the building that I climbed in Jersey City, I actually thought of it more as a CrossFit workout or something than, than a climbing challenge. Because, like, people kept asking me what I would grade it. And I was like, really, the grade, you'd have to specify a time frame. You know, because if, if you climb that building in half an hour, it would feel like climbing 13C or something, like, pretty hard. But if you climbed it in three hours, it would feel like climbing 511, you know. It's just... Whereas with rock climbing, it's not really like that. Things are just the grade they are. Yeah. Um, so more buildings in the future, maybe? Um, if I had the opportunity, I would totally climb more buildings in the future. You have, but, do you have, like, a bucket list or something? Like, or Not a bucket list. Do you have... No, so there was um, a potential TV project uh, maybe five years ago for me to climb Taipei 101. Um, in, in That'd Taiwan. Be a good one. Um, yeah, and so I scouted it and was totally ready to do it, but then the TV project fell apart, so the whole thing didn't happen. So I'd really like to do that just because I already did all the work, you know, but I didn't get the payoff of actually climbing it. So I'm sort of like, you know, I'd like to 
feel like when you've already prepped something, and, and it wasn't particularly hard climbing, so you get the outrageous experience of climbing one of the tallest buildings in the world in this really beautiful city, you know, without without that much risk, because it's like, it's just not that hard. But, so hopefully, I, I, hopefully I'll get to climb that at some point in my life. But the thing is, you just don't get permission unless it's like for a thing, you know, it has to be like for TV or for some media thing or some kind of, you know, basically the building needs a reason to take that kind of risk. But Yeah. Anything, what about like the Wind Tower in Vegas or something like that? Or the Wind Hotel? I, um, I don't know if that's doable. And it's, um, I don't know. If somebody in Vegas asked me to climb one of the buildings on the Strip, I would for sure check it out. I mean, uh, you know, it'd be cool. But um, but the Strip is is not iconic. You know, like there is something to be said for climbing buildings that, that lord over the skyline or sort of dominate their surroundings or, or that look super impressive or really interesting architecturally. You know, it's nice if a building has something going for it that makes it pop a little bit. Yeah. Um, though that said, I'll probably climb anything given the chance, but, but it's certainly better when it's cool. And that's not something that you're actively seeking right now. You're not like reaching out to people. No, like, Can no, I climb this? no, I would never reach out to people. Um, but if it came together for some TV event or something, I would totally do it. But I'm just not going to be the one spending my time trying to make that happen. It's like way too much work, you know, because with the outdoors, I can just show up in a national park, pack my bag, hike to the top of some wall and climb by myself and just do my thing. And it's all totally legal, totally loud. It's all peaceful and quiet and beautiful. You know, with buildings, it's like an absurd amount of, of effort just to even be allowed to go there. I'm like, may as well just, that's the beauty of public lands, you know. So I've got another uh, question from a friend here that mm. I have to ask you. Mm. Tell us what Honold Core is. <laughs> Who, uh, from one of my friends or from, from one of... From one of your friends. Oh, okay. Um, so it's funny, my, my agent who, like, works with me, you know, for years, always jokes that he's going to trademark Honold Core as, uh, as, like, the next big workout fad. But basically it's, uh, it's like a daily core routine that I've done on and off over the years that um sort of a combination of planking and, and opposition work so like push-ups crunches things like that um but it's typically like a little 12 minute circuit seems but, like there's real money to be made in that 12 minute abs with honold i mean maybe it seems a little douchey but um but it does it has you know worked well for me and i've always i was felt pretty good about it and you know i like it but um i don't know if it's something you need to sell but it, yeah, two minute plank, two minute workout, two minute plank, two minute workout, two minute plank, two minute workout. It's okay. just like three sets of two on, two off. But the idea is that, um, at least the way I've always done it, is that each week I make it slightly harder. So you can keep adding more reps to things or making make your planks harder by, you know, incorporating certain movements or whatever. And um, yeah, I'm like seven weeks into my core program right now. It's like kind of hard. I think I may have like pulled something in my core a couple days ago. <laughs> I was like, but I've been making it like, almost too hard for a daily routine at this point but it's because i've been spending so much time in hotels and what um this is another thing peter croft and i were talking about he's talking about how the best athletes in the world are always working on themselves like tinkering with something new whether it's part of their their you know whether it's their diet or it's their training Mm -hmm. regimen Mm -hmm. or it's something with their bodies or it's their approach it's interesting to hear peter say that because i know that he's been tinkering with his training stuff quite a bit he's like changed his fingerboarding routine over the years and sort of incorporating which is classic because he's i don't know a 55 year old man or maybe pushing 60 i mean he's you know he's relatively old for for a climber and uh and he's still playing with different styles of training and doing his best all the time it's pretty awesome 
But um, but no, I totally agree with that. And uh, I mean, I have journals going back to 2005, basically, of all my climbing. And then I have training journals going back uh, fewer years, but still pretty far. And so I try to keep track of diet and exercise and a uh, rough sense of what I'm doing and change it over time. And yeah. Is there anything new that you're incorporating into your routine or your regimen these days? Well, I mean, right now I've been gym climbing a lot just because um, because I've been traveling with the film so much. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this summer I was campusing a bunch um, using a campus board, which is just a training tool. Um, but then I sort of started hurting one of my shoulders. And so then uh, now I haven't been as much. I mean, there's nothing super super great or systematic going on but i mean i'm always sort of trying new things like even the moon board like last year all my friends were in moon boarding and i was like i think this is stupid i'm not into it and now for the last month i've been really into it while i'm traveling and uh with with the film tour and uh i'm pretty i think i think it's pretty useful i'm just like it's been really good i wanted to ask you a couple of yosemite questions too mm-hmm. um i do love yosemite yeah so you must have i mean obviously you know about the big rock fall on half dome from a couple of years ago yeah and then we're looking at the rock fall on all cap right on the right side and so i don't know does that give you any pause do you think about that at all is that something that no. crosses your mind rock fall in yosemite is not something i really think about um just because it just it's really rare here and the big geologic scale rock fall is, is sort of an act of god or you know an act of geology it's just like one of those things that happens sometimes so i mean it'd be like being afraid of an earthquake or something like if you live in the bay area if you lived in constant fear of an earthquake happening and you falling off the bridge or something you know it's just like not a not a good way to lead your life like there's no point in that like you've accepted that you live in an area with faults like if some catastrophic earthquake destroys everything then like that's just the way it goes you know like i mean when you look at the scale of some of the rock fall in all cap if i get obliterated by you know a thousand ton rock fall just like well that's just that was my time you know like, I spent my life living in the most beautiful places on Earth, and sometimes they fall down. Like, that's fair. Yeah. But, is there but, any... but for the most part, Yosemite is a very safe place to be, so it's, like, it's not something to really worry about. Okay. Is there any, like, are there any sections of any climbs that are on your mind, like, huh, there's, like, a rockfall potential here? Well, so on the nose, I mean, we're looking up at the boot flake, and the boot is detached on all sides. It's a flake that's, you know, over 100 feet tall. It's a piece of rock that's basically, it looks like a sticker pasted to the wall. And uh, it's not totally clear what holds it into the wall. And, like, I don't know why it's there, but it's it's there. And, you know, you assume that sooner or later it's going to fall off. But we'll see. We'll see. And it's pro- and if it does, it's probably not going to be because there's some climber standing No, no, it won't have anything. No, I mean, that's the thing with all rockfall. is like with geologic-scale rockfall, the rock involved is so big and so heavy that, that a person standing on it has no impact. You know, it's like a human is just so teensy compared to the scale of these rocks that it just doesn't, you know, I mean, a gust of wind probably has a greater effect on, on that scale of rock than a person standing on it. You know what I mean? If you're thinking of pounds of pressure spread over that big of a, a face, I don't know. And when you think of freeze throw through the winters and like howling windstorms and all that, I mean, the rock is going through much bigger forces than you can ever subject it to. Yeah. But, um, one question I wanted to ask you is like, it seems like you're getting more media attention than ever. Is that roughly fair to say? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a yeah, for sure, that's fair. <laughs> I mean, there's a freaking movie coming out next week, right? And then the week after, my book is republished, and then the week after, I have a TED talk coming out. It's sort of like each week for the next three weeks is a total crazy. You're like, whoa. So, in all of that, I'm wondering how you kind of preserve your 
your your brand or like your message you know your belief like i'm like do i have a message or a brand well i don't know i I guess i associate it with like the honald foundation and what what your foundation is doing um but it could also be something along the lines of like making sure that uh media outlets understand climbing the way that you think it should be understood or understand your projects or your process the way you feel like it should be understood and and it's and i i realize that a lot of that can just like roll off your back. You're like, oh, they got a fact wrong, or they screwed yeah, something yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's not a big deal. I mean, a lot but, of that but stuff. But you got to like, like draw a line somewhere too, right? And be like, this is not, not that much. Well, it's not. It's not as if I read it all, or it's not as if I see it all. I mean, in general, I would like for people to understand climbing well, and I would like for people to understand my preparation or my outlook on it. You know, when people are like, oh, you must not feel fear, and you're like, sigh, like I do. You know, and then you explain it all again. And you know, I would like for people to understand that, but if they don't, I'm like, that's fine. Like, it doesn't really matter. It's certainly not going to change the quality of my life if people misunderstand the way that I climb. I'm like, who cares? You know, I'm just, like, out doing the thing that I like to do in the places that I like to do. And I'm like, it's great, you know? Like, I'm leading the life that I want. If people don't get it or if it's misportrayed in the media, like, I'm not that stressed about it. But, I mean, it's interesting with the film because, you know, I had no editorial control over any of it. And I was just trusting the filmmakers to do a good job. And I, I think ultimately they did, but you know, there is a lot of trust there that, you know, they, with 700 hours of footage, they could have made any film they wanted about me, really. You know, they could have chosen just the positive, just the negatives, just whatever, and they could have just made anything. But, you know, I was sort of trusting them to do what they do and to do it well, and, and thankfully they did. But, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, but, yeah, in, in general, it's like, who cares? You know, it's like, you just got to lead your life and, you know... Yeah, who cares about all the, all all the media? Well, I don't know. It seems like you care. Well, so I, I I enjoy having a platform for certain things. Like, yeah, I like being able to promote promote my foundation. I like being able to, you know, potentially have a positive impact in the world in some way. I like yeah. being able to talk about environmental issues sometime or like public lands issues or, um, you know, yeah. I mean, I I do like that, but, you know, but if I didn't have that, I'm sure I'd still lead a rich, full life as well. You know. And then my last question here is a fun question I try to ask everybody, which is, what are your, like, three favorite places in California that have nothing to do with climbing, and why? Three favorite places in California? Huh. That have nothing to do with climbing? Yeah. Well, so, I think South Lake Tahoe is maybe one of my favorites. I mean, yeah. there, there is climbing there, but I love it just for the lake and for mountain biking and just for, like, being... My, my family has a place in South Lake Tahoe, so I grew up spending summers there. Or my extended family, so my grandparents and everything, and, uh... And so I just kind of love Tahoe. Like, actually, and similarly, uh, Desolation Wilderness, which is, you know, slightly west of South Lake Tahoe, I think is probably among my favorite places in the world for just, like, swept granite bowls and, like, beautiful alpine lakes. Yeah, the lakes. Like, I love Desolation. No. Other than that, I'm like, I don't know. Is there anything else in California? Like, like, I don't know. When you take out the Sierra, you take out Yosemite... uh, you know, I'm like, huh, what else is there in California? Well, do you go, like, I mean, so many people think of Northern California as, like, the <clears> Bay Area, and then sort of uh, east of the Bay Area, Yosemite and Tahoe. Mm-hmm. But, like, north of Tahoe, there's a ton of state left, and it's a lot of wilderness. I know, but it's all trees and stuff. I don't, there are no rocks, there are no mountains. Yeah. Um, you know, like, I, I mean, mountain they're, they're biked around Bonneville and stuff like that, and, you know, it's fun, but it's not a, I don't know. Um... Yeah, like, honestly, I mean, from, from Tahoe north, the state is kind of dead to me. I mean, I know there is there is cool stuff, but there's just, 
It's, ne- it's never been my thing. You're not not a beach guy, not into the coast. No, not into the coast. Um, I'm like Joshua Tree for climbing. Obviously, the desert I like, but yeah. um, I don't know. You know, the city. I mean, I kind of like the Bay Area in some ways. I mean, the traffic is totally outrageous, but yeah. But um, but like seen from the air, you know, just seeing the peninsula, of San Francisco, and the Bay. And it's like it is kind of a beautiful city, and like seeing the fog roll through. Like, you know, I do like the Bay. Um, I just can't imagine really being there i'm going to be there for like five or six days soon for uh for film stuff i think i mean honestly to me california is all about the mountains oh or freaking the east side like mammoth bishop love the east side still technically california i mean not just for the climbing but for you know for the walking in the mountains or the skiing or whatever i mean the the east side of the sierra is some of the biggest vertical relief uh of like anywhere in the world really you know, because the tops of those mountains are 14,000 feet, and, like, the Owens River Valley is 4,000, so it's, like, 10,000-foot drops, which is sort of comparable to, like, Mount Everest. You know, like, the biggest mountains in the world have, you know, not much more than 10,000 feet of vertical relief. Right. So, I mean, you know, like, if you climb, like, the north ridge of Mount Tom, which is, like, if you're in Bishop looking up at the skyline, the biggest mountain and the biggest ridge on the right, it basically drops from 13.9 or something all the way down to the valley floor, which is, like, almost 4. So you're basically doing a 10,000-foot ridge. I mean, that's, like, a Himalayan-sized ridge. But, like, in the Eastern Sierra. It's pretty cool. That is cool. But, I mean, people don't really think about that because they're like, oh, California, the mountains are only 14,000 feet high. Yeah. It's not like big mountains, but you're like, yeah, but they come up from a really freaking long way down. Totally. Or, like, I once did a hike in Death Valley from um, from uh, Scotty's Well, basically from Badwater, um, up to the top of a Telescope Peak, which is like 11,000 feet or something. But so you're going from below sea level to 11,000 feet, which is like a pretty freaking big walk, you know, doing 11,000 feet of vertical with one mountain. It's like... You know, there are not many places you can do things like that. Yeah. Yeah, California. Pretty cool. Yeah. Death Valley is pretty cool for non-climbing. I mean, just beautiful desert. Are you yeah. de- desert over trees? Yeah. Well, no, I, I like uh, I like dry pine forests. I, like, I love the Sierra. I like this type of pine forest. I hate deciduous forests. Like, the East Coast, I find it oppressive. It's definitely. It's a little it's like jungly. too humid. Yeah, yeah, too thick and kind of gross. Definitely. No, I think this is so much nicer. Uh, agreed. Yeah, I'm definitely, I prefer desert over deciduous forest. But then I prefer these pine forests the most. I mean, somebody's pretty, pretty beautiful. Yeah. Mm. Seems like a good place to call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Just ram- You're going to have to do some editing. <laughs> There's like quite a bit of rambling, but you know. Thanks again to Alex for making the time to come on the podcast. If you want to keep up on what Alex is up to, follow him on Instagram at Alex Honold. Uh, and you can learn more about his foundation at honoldfoundation.org. If you want to follow what I'm up to with California Travel, I'm on Twitter at Greg R. Thomas. Uh, or if you've got questions for me or suggestions for who I should bring on the pod, email me at gthomas at sfchronicle.com. Wild West is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you like us, please throw us a rating or a review. Our music today is a track called Coming Home by Ryan Anderson, and it comes courtesy of the Free Music Archive. See you next time.